Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. If you would like to share your adoption journey in an audio drama, please visit jenniferdianeghostin.com or onceuponatimeinadopteeland.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. My conversation today is with Cynthia. We got the chance to meet in person during 2019, and she has been one of the most encouraging people in my life since our first point of contact by email. She has listened to every episode of the podcast and cheers me on in the biggest way. I deeply appreciate that. When I invited Cynthia to join the Adoptive Voices writing group last month, she gladly came aboard to write and share her creativity each Wednesday. I look forward to her finishing and publishing her book. In this episode, she shares her experience as an LDA, a late discovery adoptee, and gives a thorough account of her persistence to find more truth to her beginnings. Cynthia always puts a smile on my face and helps me gain a better understanding of this thing called adoption. Allow me to introduce the phenomenal woman who I'm honored to know and call my friend and sister adoptee. So I'm, I'm just glad we're able to have this conversation. And, and why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about your story? Well, um, my name is Cynthia. I was born in Chicago in 1951. I had a, I would say I had a happy childhood. Um, I had very loving parents. The only thing that really happened in my childhood, well, it was a very uh, traumatic event, was my dad died when I was six. And I still have very, very strong memories of him. I, I remember him being very doting, you know, with me, very loving. And my mom, after he died, my mom would often say in years to come that if he had lived, I would have been, probably would have been spoiled rotten. So she pretty much raised me as a single mom. But my parents had migrated from the South in the 40s during the Great Migration. And they had purchased a home in Chicago, a beautiful graystone family, multifamily home. There was a first floor apartment, second floor apartment, garden apartment, and a coach house over the garage. And I share this because the people who rented from my parents were all relatives, primarily my mother's relatives who had also migrated. I was my parents' only child. I knew as I grew older, I knew that my mom had suffered a number of miscarriages. So I always thought that I was just a blessing that they were able to have. You know, I didn't think anything different. However, um, growing up as an only child, it was, you know, it was pretty lonely. You know, I, I turned to reading, which eventually led to my career path. Um, I had friends, but most of them didn't live on my block because I attended a private school from grades K through 12. And so they lived a couple blocks away. So my friends were primarily my classmates, but I would play, I played with the children on the block. But during my childhood, I always felt different, not unloved. I felt very loved, but I just felt different. My mom, um, my grandmother, my mom's mother lived in the South and she was frail very frail during the time I was growing up. And my mother would often go down and spend some time with her. And during the summer, we would both go because I was out of school. But during the school year, I was left at home with my great aunt, who is my grandmother's youngest sibling. And I remember every time I knew my mother was leaving, I would cry. I think I did that almost our grammar school up until I, and I just remember crying and getting mad at myself and saying, why are you crying? You know, your mom is coming back, you know, talking, think, just thinking to myself, again, blaming it on being an only child. As a result of finding out much later in life that I was adopted and doing research, I realized I was a separate, I was um, experiencing trauma and separation anxiety. So you discovered you were in LDA. I am a late discovery adoptee. I was born, as I said, in 1951. 
I did not find out I was adopted until 1997 when I was 46 years old. That was five years after my mom died in 1992. And as I mentioned earlier, my parents had this beautiful graystone home that was my childhood home. So I was their only child. So naturally, the home, I inherited my childhood home. But after my mom died, things didn't seem right. Some people were acting strangely. In fact, the day I buried my mom, as soon as we walked into the repast, someone said, well, you know, my husband's name is on your mother's will. I said, yes, I know. He's the executor of her will. They were worrying about my mother's belongings, the things that she had. And during that time, my only advocates really were uh, my mother's sister, and she had a first cousin. And these ladies, there was two wonderful women. They were both in their 80s at the time. But they were the ones who would take up for me and check up for me and just help me when I was going through difficulties. So in spring of 1997, I decided I had gone through so much, so much. I told my husband, you know, we need to sell the house. Um, it was just emotionally draining, and it was beginning to affect me physically. So at this so point, you didn't know you were. I still adopted. didn't know about the adoption, but I had gone through so much. I was being harassed on the phone. I was stalked at my church because my church was near my childhood home. And even though I lived in a near suburb, I came back to my childhood church every Sunday. And, and it was just, it was a very distressful time. Didn't feel safe in my own home when my husband wasn't there. It was just very distressing. I put the house on the market. And a couple of days after my birthday in August, I was having a conversation with the buyer. And she said, oh, by the way, I heard that you are adopted. I immediately started laughing. I said, oh, yes. I said, we know a whole lot of things have been said about me, <laughs> you know, and I laughed it off. Right. However, when I hung up the phone, I went to the lockbox where we keep all our important papers. And I pulled out my birth certificate. I looked at it, put it back in, locked it, you know, locked it back. I said, OK. A few days later was Labor Day, September 1st, 1997. I was having a conversation with Cousin Rosie. This is what I call her, Cousin Rosie, my mom's first cousin. And I said, Cousin Rosie, I said, you know, someone told me I was adopted. And she said to me, babe, at least they did not lie on you this time. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. And I told her, I said, well, no one ever told me. And I was home. The only people at home were uh, myself and my husband. I have two children. I had a, a daughter who at the time was a senior in college, and my son was beginning his senior year of high school, and he was at a friend's house. And so when my when Cousin Rosie, when I told her, no one ever told me, uh, then she went on to say, well, you know, when um, your mom and dad brought you home, they told and they invited us to come over to meet you. And it was, made it was made very clear that no one was ever to say anything. And at that point, I gave the phone to my husband. He, hadn't, he wasn't quite sure what the conversation had been. I went upstairs to our bedroom, closed the drapes, closed the door, and I was sitting in the middle of the bed when he found me. So that is how I, um, I found out. Mm. I was angry. I was in denial, disbelief, all of that. And I'm starting to not, you know, my husband called my aunt and he called a good friend of mine. And my aunt lived in Detroit. So she did not live in Chicago, but she called me and she was upset because she had heard that at, at the family reunion, which I did not attend that summer, that someone wanted to make sure I knew I was adopted. And she kept telling me all summer, she said, Cynthia, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm coming to see you. And I didn't think it was strange because we would visit each other very often. And so she was devastated because she wanted to be the one to tell me because she knew the person who wanted to put it out there was not going to tell me in love. It was going to be for pain, which it was. And during that time, what got me through was my faith, 
my faith in God because my mother had given me a firm foundation in my faith. And that was what kept me going, along with my husband, my children, and some very close friends. I did not share my story with many people. I pretty much kept it to myself. But what disturbed me was finding out that everyone in my family knew, uh, cousins, older cousins, younger cousins, everyone knew but me. Eventually, many years later, I also found out that neighbors knew. And so I'm walking around and, it, you know, with this not knowing all this information that everyone else is privy to. Right. Can, can we fir- take a minute just to define late discovery adoptee, LDN? Late, di- late discovery adoptee means that you find out you are adopted in adulthood, mm-hmm. not as a child. I think they recommend, you know, parents start talking to children with age-appropriate words early on. I didn't have any of that. I had no clue. And I have I have gone back and thought about many situations to think if there was something that I missed. And there were a couple, but nothing that definitively said you're adopted. Right. I remember when you first told me that you were an LDA and what that felt like to find out at 40-something years old. Yes. Um Immediately, it affected my trust. I felt betrayed. Right. At that point, for a long time, I couldn't trust anyone. And I said, I didn't trust anyone. I mean, I didn't trust anyone, even those I could trust. I questioned everything because if the person who has been the closest to you keeps something from you like that for almost 50 years, that's very difficult. After I found out, I called my cousins, I called, and they all claimed they knew, they didn't know anything. And I did not believe them. And I didn't believe them until my I spoke to my mother's sister, my aunt, and her cousin, cousin Rosie. And when they told me that my mother and father, uh, this was their wish, that I would never be told, then I believed it. I felt very betrayed. And it helped to clarify Everything that had happened after my mom died in 1992 until I found out. why it, I understood why people were acting the way they acted. They felt that since I was adopted, I had no rights to the property that my parents had purchased in 1947. Do you think if your mom were still living, she would still not want you to know? Yes. Uh, I believe my mom was traumatized. Because she could not have, she had had many miscarriages and was unable to have a baby naturally. Mm-hmm. So when she adopted me, I was her baby. Right. And she didn't want to think of any, any other label to put on it. I wasn't adopted. I was just her precious baby, her baby and my dad's baby. So I think she put all of that out of her mind. She didn't even want to, and this is, and I know this um, because when I found the adoption agency, the social worker had my file and the file indicated that my mother wasn't receptive to information about the best time to tell me or how to tell me that I was adopted. They didn't want this book called A Chosen Child that could be shared with me to help me understand being adopted. So I knew that that was very deep in her. And I was angry at my mom for a while. But I couldn't stay angry at her because I guess because I was I was 46. I understood. I knew what she had gone through and her desire to have children. And I knew she loved me unconditionally because I always say the only thing my mom did not do for me was give birth to me. I have gone to her grave site a few times after I found out. And I would, you know, and I would talk to my mom. I said, Mom, I said. Why didn't you tell me? I wish you had told me because even though I understand that hurt was very deep. For sure. And and it sounds like she really wanted to, to pretend like she did give birth to you. Yes. Yes, um, she did. And looking back and I've looked back, I remember one day um, she and my aunt, my great aunt, they, they told me, well, you know, you have a relative who you look just 
who you resemble a great deal. I said, oh, you know, but they didn't give me any other information. But I was thinking uh, the relatives I knew primarily were my mom's relatives. My dad's siblings lived in different states, and I knew I had cousins in other states, but I hadn't really seen them that much. And I knew I didn't look like, I didn't really look like any of them. So I was trying to figure out, you know, who is this person? But then that was that was that one little hint. And so many years later, I thought back on that day and I was I wonder, was she trying to figure out a way to say something? But I didn't pick up on it. I didn't, you know, I didn't question it. I grew up in an era where, you know, you listen, but you don't do a lot of questioning. And so I just, I left it at that because I didn't look like my mom. My mom was petite in height. I have a first cousin who is a, her mini-me, so to speak. I'm not tall, but I'm about five, six, and we don't resemble at all. But now when I think back on it, I didn't look like anyone uh, in my family. Now, I know you went through a period uh, that you shared with me about being angry. Yes. And so how did you come through that? Prayer. I had, you know, my, you know, my, uh, my relationship with God is what brought me through that. I had to work my way through that. I moved past the anger towards my mom rather quickly. But my anger was towards relatives who had an idea of what was going on, but still allowed me to be hurt. Yeah, that, um, that's what I was thinking that's, of. That that's deep when, you know, people you've known all your life, you know, they just left me hanging. And before I was found out I was adopted, I even called one of my mom's cousins, a male cousin. And I, I was trying to figure out, you know, what is going, you know, what is going on? And I told him, I literally told him, I feel like I'm on an island by myself. And he made no, no comforting words. It's just like, and so I knew, you know, that was a closed door. That was not going to help me. So that, that's what hurt, you know, when people close to you allow you to be hurt, they know something is coming, but they don't do anything to inter- intervene. That was very hurtful. I wasn't angry with my aunt and my and my mother's first cousin, the two ladies in their 80s. My aunt was trying to come to see me, to tell me. She she wanted to uh, cushion the way that I would be told. Yeah, I, I get a sense that maybe family members just really thought that it would be harmful for, for them to tell you, um, of course, we don't agree with that as adoptees. Yeah, I'm thinking that that maybe that that they feel that it would not be in your best interest. Like somehow that's how they're they're looking at it. Well, maybe some of them felt that way because when I questioned one, one of them said that my parents had stated that they didn't want me told and she was never going to tell. And even this was after I found out. And and I know that they don't now I know that they really didn't understand what they were doing, but it put me in a very, very painful situation. Yeah, absolutely. One thing finding out I was adopted helped me with was it helped me understand myself as a child. You know, when I found out I was adopted, uh, I immediately started doing research. I started reading about adoptees and birth moms and just reading anything I could find so I could have an understanding of what was going on. And so when I look back at my crying spells, I realized I was having separation anxiety. I had eczema as a child, and I also I read that that can be one of the um, manifestations of adoption. So it really helped me understand some of the things I went through that I always blamed on being an only child. I went through all of my mom's personal papers. I started, my husband and I started going to the library, looking at microfiche, finding contacting adoption organizations, whatever I could do. But I couldn't really find anything that would lead me to anyone. I had on my birth certificate, there was the name of the doctor who delivered me was on there. But by that time, he was de- he was deceased. And her attorney, my mother's attorney, was deceased. But one of the organizations that I reached out to, you should write to a particular judge who works downtown in the Daily Center. I said, okay. So I wrote this judge a letter, explained my situation. After I wrote him a letter, my husband was assigned to jury duty at the Daily Center. So when he went downtown, 
for jury duty, he went to the judge's office and spoke to the clerk and mentioned my name and said, you know, my wife has written a letter to the judge. Do you, has he received it? And the clerk said, yes, and your wife will be receiving a response soon. And I did. I received a response and he told me that adoption files were sealed in the state of Illinois, which I already knew. But the blessing was, he said, but the adoption agency was, and he gave me the name of the adoption agency. And that is what opened the door because I didn't know how it was that I had come to be adopted. I didn't know if I had been abandoned. I didn't know what had happened. They assigned a social worker to me, a caseworker, and she had my, and whenever she would talk to me, she had my file um, on her desk and I could hear her going through the file, looking at different pages and talking to me. And whenever she did that, it was, it would upset me because I'm thinking she has my life story in front of her, but she cannot tell me. Oh, I remember feeling that same thing. And so it makes you, it makes you angry, really, because it's your story. Why should, you know, why can't I know my story? Yeah, and it'll never be as important to them as it is to you. Exactly. Uh, one of the, uh, requests that I was able to make, I was able to receive my non-identifying information from the adoption agency. And that was, that was monumental. It took about a month, a little more than a month before I received the non-identifying information. And non-identifying information is information about your biological family, their ages, physical descriptions, um, but they don't tell you their names and you don't know where they live. Mine is very comprehensive because I remember the day it arrived at my house. I sat at my dining room table, afraid to open it. I called my husband at work. I said, you know, I haven't received the non-identifying information. He, I said, I'm afraid to open it. He said, well, if you want, you can wait for, you know, wait till I get home. So I hung up from him. I opened it and I started reading about my birth mother's family. They described her physical appearance, height, approximate weight, skin tone, her siblings, her parents, her grandparents. Uh, there was even information in there about my birth father. And it was just amazing to me because the way they described my birth mom and her sisters could have been a description of uh, my daughter and myself. But what really made it clear was they had anecdotal records that the foster mom had written about me because I found out that I was in foster care from the time I was born until I was almost two and a half years of age. So along with this non-identifying information comes these anecdotal records from the foster mother where she listed all the milestones, anything that was pertinent to me. When you found out about the foster home, was that the first time you knew about it? Yes, when I read um, the non-identifying information. Wow. And when I read that, I stopped and it gave me the shivers because all I could do was say, thank you, God, because all I could think about was what could have happened to me. I spent my whole career working with children. I was just so thankful that none of those things happened to me. But it also hit me because I realized from the time I was born, I was taken from my mom and I was with someone else until I was two and a half. And, you know, and then I was adopted. And being a mother and a grandmother, it tore up my heart because I know how important that contact is and that bond is. And so it was very upsetting to me to learn that. Mm. It was very upsetting. But based on what I Little I have been able to find out about the birth mother, I mean, the foster mother, and just from who I am right now and throughout my life, I know that the foster mother must have taken, you know, very good care of me. Right. Um, but just to show you, when I was reading this information, at first I said, well, you know, maybe this is me, maybe it's not. But then I read one little line. The foster mother had taken me to the doctor because she was concerned because I have a little nod, there was a little nodule by my right ear. 
And the doctor told, oh, don't be concerned. That's perfectly okay. And when she, when I read that line, I moved my hand up to my right ear and I touched that nodule. And when I touched it, I said to myself, this is really about me. Mm. Something that's part of me that I knew there was no mistake. Right. I made a request for them to put me on a waiting list. They said that they would search, you know, for my birth mom. And took up almost, um, took about a year. I had to wait almost a year for them to start searching. But I was searching um, as well. My husband and I, we were trying, trying to figure out things. And we did whatever we could trying to, trying to get some information. Did the agency charge you? Yes. I had to pay for the non-identifying information. And I had to pay for the search. Yes. Mm. Yes, I did. Yeah, there was a fee. Yeah, it was a fee. In my, yeah, in my getting non-identifying information. And that fee was a, would be $100. And yeah. I, I believe, like, that is so uncool to have to it pay $100 mm-hmm. for information about your beginnings. It is uncool, especially when they're sitting there in their office looking at your information. They know the names. They know they, you know, they know all about you. Yeah. But they're not going but they're not going to tell you. Yeah, and then they're gonna charge you. Like, yes. like like it's almost like now when I think cause that that's like nine years ago for me. And when I think back to a hundred dollars, you're gonna charge me for information about me. Like something about that seems very uh what is the word? Disrespectful. I agree. But at the time, <laughs> right. but at the time, but at the time, I was just like you because I was at the point, okay, you need this money to search. You need this money to give me my non-identifying information. Here you go. Here you go. Yeah, that that was <laughs> you know, me. Here you go. I want I mean I didn't like it, but you know, that's what I, I did. And and I remember not liking even more than the hundred dollars. Like that didn't really bother me at the time. It bothers me now, though. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, you would think it shouldn't bother me, but it bothers me now. But but I remember what did bother me is when they said in a month, you know, like we're gonna go through this file that you see me with in front of you with everything in it, including your original birth certificate, which I didn't have at the time. We're going to go through this file. And we're going to make a report and get back with you in about a month. Like, I remember that like it was yesterday. And I was thinking, a month? They're taking everything that's in this file. And then someone is putting it in order so that they could send it to me. You know, that is what I think happened. And just like old census records that were done by hand, you find mistakes because they did it by hand. There are a couple things that were off. And, you know, I know now. But I attribute that to the fact that they were transferring information. Uh, it wasn't the original social worker who was doing this. You are right. It's annoying. That's a real biggie that people who are not in the adoption community don't realize. When I started searching, I told it, you know, I didn't talk to a lot of people, but I said, I have a right to know. I felt that way. I have a right to know. And it felt like some of you were being sent. You had to jump through all these hoops to get something that's about yourself. He started the search in uh, spring of 1999. and Well, actually, I'm sorry, the beginning of 1999. And they found her in the spring. I met her for the first time in July. And I remember that meeting to this day. I met her at my sister's house. I was the oldest of many siblings. My sister opened the door and I walked into the house. And my birth mom was standing there. All I could see was a reflection of myself 18 years, 17, 18 years into the future, from head to toe. It was very surreal. It was unbelievable because I had never been able to mirror. We talk about mirroring in the adoption community. We all need to be able to mirror, see someone who looks like us, has different characteristics and traits. And I didn't realize how important I was until I walked in that room and met my birth, my birth mom. Mm, same here. It didn't. That was um, me. that was very um, that was a very 
awesome is not even a good word. It was a very emotional moment. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking because at this point you had had two kids. Yes. And and did you have any grandkids at this point? No. When I met her, I I believe um, my daughter had graduated from college and my son was in college. You know, so they were, um, you know, young adults. Yeah. But you you had you did have your kids as I had my son um, when I was in reunion. And yet the mirroring, because my son, he, he looks more like his dad. Mm-hmm. So I guess I didn't really think too much about the mirroring because he didn't look just like me. But for you, did you think your kids, did you think about mirroring at all? Like seeing you yourself well, and your kids? You know, well, my children, um, my daughter resembles me. and Well, she resembles her dad too, but you know, I can see myself in in both of my children, but I never connected with the fact that I really didn't have that myself right. growing up until I met my birth mom. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have other siblings, you know, and I just didn't, whatever reason, I did not think about it. And it was never, you know, how sometimes people might say, well, who do you look like? You know, no right. one ever said anything out of the way like that to me. I was kept very sheltered. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably why that didn't happen. See, I could see why you probably didn't make the connection with the importance of mirroring because you didn't know you were adopted. Right. You know, right. Like, I, like for me, I did know I was adopted and still mm-hmm. didn't make the connection of how powerful that piece is. And like you, I make the connection in reunion. I'm like, that's a very powerful piece because when I saw my brother... We look so much alike. It was mm-hmm. just, yeah, that feeling. That's important. It is important because, um, you know, I have sisters who resemble me. In fact, one recently sent me a picture of two of them that had me in tears because I felt as if I was looking at myself as a teenager from head to toe. And it was just, you know, it was just amazing to me. Uh, looking at them as teenagers and real, you know, remembering how I looked as a teenager, and so it's very important. And even to the point where my birth mom's youngest sibling, my aunt, she's four to five years older than me, and my sisters tell me that I sound just like her because if I call them, you know, they might mistakenly think I'm her. So now when I talk to her, I'm listening to her voice because they tell me her voice is my voice. That is really something. And so, and I know there are people who take things like that for granted. Oh, yes, I know I do this like mom or like my cousin. But when you haven't had that, it's just, it's really amazing when those things happen. It really is. Like, I remember looking at my brother's hands. Mm-hmm. Like, looking at him and and how that's the mirroring piece that we don't have. Yeah. It's validation. Yeah, that's you know, a good word. It's validation that many people have all of their lives. They don't even think about it. You know, right. they don't get up in the morning thinking about, oh, I look like, you don't even think, it's, an, it's a natural thing that happened. During my initial conversation with my mom, she did tell me, give me my birth father's name. You know, at that time, when I met her and all my siblings, I was too overwhelmed uh, <laughs> just meeting them to search for him at that time. And so I kind of put things were pretty much on hold in the uh, early 2000. But I should share that I met my birth mom, as I said, in July 1999. She died in 2001. And I reflect on that a lot. And I mention that because I, I believe in God's timing. You mentioned, you asked me about my mom who raised me. I feel that she would have had a very difficult time if she were alive and she knew I was searching for my birth family. That would have been very difficult for her. I don't know if I would have been able to tell her. But she died five years before I found out that I was adopted. And then two years after I found out, I met my birth mom. Got to know her assuage her of any guilt. And she she really didn't need to have any guilt because she was forced to give me up. That was not her choice. But she died in 2001. You know, I'm just thankful that I found her when I did, so that I did get a chance to meet her. Yeah. 
So how old was she when she was pregnant with you? 17. Okay, so her parents were the reason that she yes. relinquished. Yes, and it's, um, you know, I even had some people tell me, oh, your mom didn't want you, so forth. But again, going back to the adoption agency, it was in my file that my mom, my birth mom, had, she had um, contacted and gone back to the agency multiple times trying to find out where I was. So, yeah. so that was, you know, validated. And, you know, the, you know, the next biggie was, and I know it was a biggie for you, the original birth certificate. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, you know, there was a legislator um, Sarah. In, the, in the state legislature, you know, she came up with this bill so that adoptees could have their original birth certificate. Right. And I'm not, I'm not sure w- when did it pass because I didn't apply for mine until June of 2014. So the law was changed in 2010. Okay. I know I applied in 2011. Okay. Because I applied in 2014, and uh, that was also monumental. Yeah. Because right away, you when you receive it, you compare it to your the birth certificate you had all your life, and you know you see your birth mom's signature on there. Oh, that signature from the birth and mom. Yeah. That was very important. Was your birth father's name on there? No, and that was I was curious about that. You know, I was like, oh, maybe you know, maybe his name would be on there, even though she had given me the name, but no, it was not on there. Mm-hmm. What name were you given at birth? Cynthia Antoinette. Antoinette is the middle name of my birth mom and the middle name of my maternal grandmother. So I was given that name purposely, even though my middle name was changed to Diane when I was adopted. And my family called me Diane. And I used to always wonder, why don't they call me Cynthia? Because I was called Cynthia by friends and Cynthia at school, but at home, and with other relatives, I was called Diane, but it's because that's the name my parents gave me. So your adoptive mom or parents kept Cynthia as your first yes. name? They were advised since I, I was two, almost two and a half, not to change the first name. Wow. So they changed the middle name. Right. And they called you by your middle name more often? Yes. I have right. friends to this day, childhood friends who remember me being called Diane. That's interesting. Yeah, we have the same middle name. The social worker didn't tell my parents that. They were like, you could change your name, but keep calling her by her birth name, but like introduce it as a nickname. (laughs) No, I was very seldom that I hear uh, Cynthia at home. How has being connected to the adoption community been of value and useful to you? It has been more valuable and words, really, because when I just found out I was adopted, a couple of years later, my husband and I moved to a different area and found out, we found out there was an adoption support group in the area. And I immediately went to that group and joined that group. And they were, my, you know, they were just so helpful to me, uh, providing resources as I searched. And not only that, providing emotional support because there were birth moms, adopted parents, adoptees, everyone who's part of the constellation was part of this group. And so I was able to get a lot of information and a lot of encouragement. And now I belong to Adoption Network in Ohio. Just being able to share your story with someone and you know that someone understands what you're talking about. Yeah. That is monumental. People who are not adopted, they might say, oh, yeah, but sincerely will try to be empathetic. But they often, they really do not understand. They don't understand that adoption is trauma. I think that's they an all... excellent point. It is definitely not understood as a trauma. No, it's not understood. And they feel that, well, you know, you had a good home. Right. You had, you were loved. You had everything you need. Yeah. But that's not all that you need. You know, we have uh, conflicts now with this word grateful. Why should we be grateful when we're taken away? Okay. Yes, I had a, you know, I had a good life. There was a piece of me missing. And in order to understand totally who you are, you need to find the missing piece. I don't think anybody who hasn't experienced separation from their original family could possibly understand 
what no. that is really all about. And I think our both our adoptive moms, because they were not, and I'll, I'll just speak for my mom, was not separated from her original family. So she, there was no way for her to really understand what that meant for me. And it's like um, going forward, you know, like a few years ago, I embarked on a search for my biological father. People knew I was searching. They were empathetic, but they were concerned, you know, they didn't want me to be upset, you know, afraid of what I might find. But I was never afraid to search. I felt that I needed to complete this puzzle, not just for me, but for my children. And now I have grandchildren. They need to know. And so I stayed the course and I found my birth father as well. As you said, Jennifer, if you're not adopted, if you have, as they say, if you haven't stood in those shoes, mm-hmm. you don't really understand uh, the implications, but it's very deep. It is. That's the big stuff. Being separated yeah. from your from your biological family is big stuff. What would you say to adoptees in search of birth family members or thinking about embarking on a reunion? I would say, first of all, make sure in your mind you're thinking you have a right to find your biological family. You have a right. And don't be discouraged by naysayers. In fact, be very careful who you share your search with. If they're not going to be supportive, don't share your, you know, don't share what you're doing with them. Find as much information as you can on searching and reunion. Because when you search and you find someone, there are ways to contact those people that are best. You know, ways to write a letter if you write a letter, ways to make a phone call so that people will respond to you. I would advise you to journal. Journaling is very helpful. Write your experience down because that will help you heal as you go through this process. Just remember that the adoption journey is like a roller coaster. There will be ups and downs, but that's what it takes to reach your goal. Uh, Searching, it takes time, patience, persistence, determination, and thick skin. (laughs) Thick skin is so true. Uh, prepare yourself for possible outcomes. Because generally speaking, whatever outcome you think it might be, whatever comes up in your imagination is going to be something totally different. Mm, Take a DNA test. I was able to find my biological father because of ancestry DNA. We didn't have ancestry DNA in 1997. So we had to do uh, the footwork, (laughs) the leg work, whatever you want to call it, you know, the old-fashioned way. And join a support group. Mm Because the support group, there will be people who have found their families, people who are in reunion, people who are searching, experts who can give you information that will be helpful to you. I think that support group is very needed. The group I joined in 97, 98, I stayed with that group until I found my birth mother. I did not know anyone else who wasn't adopting until 2018 when a cousin on my DNA match list, contacted me, who is also an adoptee. That was the first time. And connecting with her was a blessing. We know we're we're very closely related. And being able to talk to each other is wonderful. So, Yeah, I bet it is. And I've had an opportunity to to meet her. And um, I hope she'll be able to come on and be a part of this podcast at some point in the near future. But... I, I hope you, you all do write your books and people get to hear your amazing stories and how you all are in reunion. And I know you both recently started participating in Adoptee Voices. Tell me what you think about Adoptee Voices. Well, you know, writing about your experiences are always is always healthy and healing. And it's powerful because... Adoptive voices, in the midst of working on your writing, you're sharing your stories. And so you're learning from others in the midst of learning from others about their experiences. You can, you, you can uplift each other. You can comfort each other. And so that's all combined together. And it's a safe place. It's a safe place. Adoptees have, need a safe place where they can share. And just like being, belonging to um, support groups, Adoptive Voices is not a support group, but it's a safe place to share your adoption experiences and to sharpen and improve your writing so that you can write your story and give you different options on how to go about that. 
Yeah, and setting aside that time, like once a week, and devote to getting my story out of outside of myself onto the paper. And Jennifer, as you know, I started writing my story a long time ago, and I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. And part of the reason is, you know, as you write and you get to certain sections, it's very emotional. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find a way to work your way through that so that you can continue writing. And so, you know, it is a process. But like you said, adoptive voices, you know, you're meeting on a regular basis. And so it helps you to get into the mindset of writing on a regular basis. And I like the way we have different prompts where you're not always, don't always have to write in the same format unless that is what you want to do. So you're being given different options. And just that space of knowing it's it's just adoptees, I think. Yes. There was a real hunger for that, which I didn't even know. Uh, Sarah Easterly identified that, I'm sure, some time ago in creating the program and or the group, and, and it's so needed. I think for all of us, even the facilitators, I, we're finding that it's, it's uh, so healing for us to listen to everybody it is, share. Yeah. It is healing because when you're talking to people, people ask you about the, the most difficult or the, the most outstanding experiences in your life. If you're an adoptee, nine times out of ten, it relates back to one of those adoption experiences. You know, and often people are not adopted. They don't want to, you know, why? Oh, here she comes again talking about <laughs> being an adoptee. Right. But, when, but when it's adoptee voices or you're in an adoption support group, we're glad to listen to each other right. and give each other support, there give each is. other encouragement. Right. So you don't have to worry about someone saying, here she goes again. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, and even if they don't say it, like, because I think, like, my, I'm thinking of my cousins. They never said that to me, but I felt that. Like, maybe it was mm-hmm. just me. I just felt, but with adoptees, I don't ever feel that. I don't ever right. feel that. And I think that's that sense of belonging versus fitting in that I appreciate so much within the community. Um, I definitely feel like I belong. And I could be talking to a generation younger I could be talking to a transracial, like it could be any member of the adoptee community in their own story that's very different from mine. I still feel like I belong. At the end of the day, we both have that trauma in common, you know. Yes, we, have that, we do. That, and that trauma is so real and so big that, that we can't help but relate with one another. <laughs> because I remember when you and I, you know, connected. I was like, wow, okay, now I have two, two people I can talk to, you know, (laughs) two people understand, you know, and then, you know, you introduced me to the, you know, adoption network. And it's just like, my goodness, you know, it was, and it's, as you said, people of young, old, all different backgrounds all over the country. And it's just amazing because you hear those common threads throughout. As adoptees, we need we really need someone to listen and understand. Yeah. We really do. Because society in general, uh, they don't really understand the implications of adoption. They just feel, well, you were adopted, problem solved. Mm-hmm. I know you listened to Corey Quinn in episode five of the yes. podcast. And, yes. And Corey, uh, transracial adoptee, I think the way he explained his experience growing up, so going back to... We all have that common thread. It's amazing how we can connect with one another and be in very different places. Because I, you know, I don't know what that lived experience is as a transracial adoptee. How did that episode make you feel when you listened to it? It was, it was painful to hear what he experienced. You know, because okay, being adopted. You know, I'm African American. I was adopted by African American parents, so. I may not have resembled my parents, but, but, you know, I didn't stand out. And he stood out. You know, he couldn't. It was just there. And that makes it, I think that made it even more difficult in terms of his experience. I think it it was even deeper. I think it made it even deeper. Yeah. he. I think, and I believe, as he said, if it's transracial, you have to, you always have to take into mind the culture of the child. They need 
to be exposed to their culture. Um, that's very important. And if they don't know how to go about it, find resources that will help them do that. I think that should be their responsibility if they're going to adopt a transracial child. Find out what you can do so that child can be whole. Yeah, he. I feel like he expressed so well to me how his experience as a Black person, it was almost like it was discarded. Mm-hmm. But he cannot discard it because it's his skin. He's got to go out in the world and people see him as a black child, as a black male. And and to think that you can be colorblind, it broke my heart. So I agree with you. It was. It was really sad. Him describing finding music basically saved him because, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's classically trained and he's an uh, amazing pianist and he gravitated to music. And even like, at, I think he said at 18 or 19 when he was intentional about studying black culture so that he could somewhat, he, he called it play catch up because he knew nothing about being black. Yeah. yeah, that was a very powerful conversation. And everyone that's listened was quite moved by it. I'm glad you listened. I'm glad you're like one of my biggest supporters because you encouraged me like you would not believe uh, by reading my book and reaching out to me and then being engaged with the podcast. I just appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you. (laughs) I really do. I wanted to say something about LDA, Make Discovery Adoptees. Okay. You know, uh, you talked about transracial adoptees. Um, Late discovery adoptees are also in a category, a separate category. We have the same, we, you know, we experience the same things. We just don't know why we're experiencing it. We can't say, oh, I'm adopted. That's why. But you also add in there, and, you know, those who are, everyone who's adopted may feel betrayal, have problems with betrayal and trust. But it's even more poignant with LDAs. There's not a lot of literature in terms of how to help LDAs. You may see a paragraph here, a paragraph there, but I'm hopeful that going forward, there will be more information because LDAs go through a lot on top of everything else that um, that happens as an adoptee. Yeah. And there are quite a few LDAs. I, I feel like I'm meeting, yes. I'm meeting a late discovery adoptee uh, several in every month. Right. And, and it's good at and when I look at them, because, you know, when I've been on this journey a long time, you know, I can see the pain. I remember it, it takes me back because I remember those initial days, how I felt and what I experienced. But I would tell them whatever you are feeling is real and you have a right to feel it. I would tell them to make sure, be, be true to yourself be, and be your own voice. Don't let anyone else tell you, you know, tell your story. You tell it yourself and realize it's going to take time to work through your feeling. It's like grieving the loss of a loved one, which in effect you are doing. You have to work your way through those feelings. And for the parents who kept the secret, it doesn't mean they didn't love you. Some of them were dealing with their own trauma and they were doing, some of them were doing what they thought was best. In that letter I shared with you from Nancy Barrier. Yes who wrote The Primal Wound, I highlighted this sentence. She said, many birth mothers who gave up their babies because they were told it was the right thing to do. You are in that age group. She's referring to back to the fact that I was born in the 50s. You are in that age group that your birth mother may have been one of the, it is not all right to be an unwed mother. Not realizing that the mothers were also traumatized by that separation. And that is so true. The era, the times in which you were adopted, society has had a lot of influence on things that happen, especially going back in time. Yeah. I would I would recommend, you know, we talked about it, Jennifer, finding an adoption competent therapist. It's important to talk to someone, someone who does not know you at all, who can guide you and, and lead you. And just listen. Sometimes just listen. Because a therapist who doesn't know anything about adoption is not going to be as beneficial to you. Yeah. Do you think you're still working through the late discovery piece in your story? Or have you somewhat? Or have you arrived to a, a really good place where you you you're maybe done with that part of it? I'm no longer stuck 
there because initially when I found out I was um, adopted, I would have, if I was talking to someone about it, I had what I called inner tremors. I could feel myself shaking. You know, if you looked at me, I was not visibly shaking, but I would be, it's like something was just unnerving me. And the more time went on, the more I was able to forgive and just move on. I was able to move past that. So I would say I'm not stuck there anymore. The only issue I deal with regarding that is when I go back, <clears throat> have to go back and write about it. You know, I have to deal with that part because I don't want to go back to where I was because that was an extremely difficult time. And the important thing about that, I couldn't just stop and deal with, okay, I just found out I was adopted. You know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I was a teacher, I'm a friend, I'm a church member. I had all these other things that people have going on in their life, but yet I had to deal with this in the midst of all of that. It was difficult. It was very difficult. And your writing has been beautiful in the adoptive voices. Thank you. And, and just the, and the way in which you read. Like I just, I just don't want, want it to end. I think you, you, you are so creative with telling your story as you remember it. I think there was a prompt where you know, if I knew then what I know now. Secrets are gone. I was going to speak for Cynthia. I am Cynthia's voice. And so when, when I talk about it, I guess, Jennifer, that's how it comes out because I just feel so strongly about that because all of this information was kept from me. So, yeah. Well, I guess we can wrap it up. Is there anything that you want to to say to LDAs in particular or adoptees in general? I would say to LDAs, um, don't be discouraged. I think today it's a little, not that it will be easy, but it's easier than when I began searching because of the DNA test. Don't be, don't hesitate to do that. I think that's one of the best tools of an adoptee. For instance, I tested with Ancestry DNA, and as a result, I obtained a membership. So I had access to census records, military records, birth records, death records, school pictures, family trees, and it is so helpful. Mm-hmm. I would say find a support group, whether you're LDA, transracial adoptee, or all adoptees in general. You need a support group. You know, I have worn my husband's ears out. <laughs> And he is so happy that I have found this community because <laughs> he's, you know, he's very empathetic, but, right. you know, and so it's a blessing. You know, I have a very a close cousin now who's also an adoptee and it's not so much a blessing that we were adoptees, but it's a blessing that we have each other and, yeah. you know, in our lives and we can walk this journey together. And I just have to say, I I saw the video when you first, you two first met, and I was moved to total tears of joy because I could feel it. I could feel what, I I guess because you're both, we're all adoptees, you know, so it was like I could just feel that. It was uh, very powerful. And we were in the middle of the Hilton (laughs) Hotel lobby on Michigan Avenue, in Chicago, downtown Chicago. And I knew, I had met my my birth mom and my siblings, so I had met some other members of my family, but I knew that I was going to be the first person, first blood relative she would meet mm-hmm. other than her children. Right, right. And so when we met, you know, we're standing in the middle of this hallway and we were oblivious to everyone around us, you know, And she met three generations of my family that day. She met my daughter, my granddaughter, and she met me. Mm. And so it was very powerful. And there were times when we were all in tears, including husbands. Mm. Because it was was such a, um, it was just. It was big. I'll just say, wow. Yeah, that was so big. I watched the video like three or four times in a row. And I think for me, it was the adoptee piece, too. It was like you Mm -hmm. both were adoptees. Yes, yes, yes. And we bonded. You know, we bonded as soon as she contacted me. We bonded. And I tell people, we bonded for life. Yeah, be nice. Because we talk, we share, we support each other. And 
yeah, we just we just bonded because of our experience. Yeah, I can I get that. And you guys probably do know this already. Like it's not every day that you meet a biological family member who is also adopted. Right. Yeah. No, I no, I didn't know anyone in my family. I didn't know any in fact, I didn't know any adoptees. I knew people who they were raised by an aunt or a cousin, but their mother was someone else. But they were all still in the same family. You know, it's not it's not like the she was whoever it was was they were all part of the same family it was just a matter of who took care of you but yeah. see that's that's different because you're still you, you are still with your biological family but no i didn't i didn't know any adoptees yeah. and the blessing right now is knowing so many more and being able to, to communicate with them for me too same same for me also i would advise i would suggest if you are an adoptee and you have not read The Primal Wound, I would highly recommend it. I do um, too. Be Prepared is not a book that you can read through um, like a mystery or some something else you might read. You might have to start and stop. Mm-hmm. But it's very important to finding out and understanding who you are. Mm-hmm. Understanding you, the trauma. Yeah. Yeah, understanding the trauma. Mm-hmm. Because adoption is trauma. Adoption is trauma. It has affected all of us deeply. It is trauma. It is. It's one of the biggest traumas. Yes, it is. And I think for me, I didn't even understand the bigness of the trauma. And so I agree with you, the primal wound will help any and everybody, but especially adoptees to, to understand the trauma, that it was in fact a trauma. And And why would other people outside of the adoption community come to understand the bigness of our trauma if we don't even understand it ourselves? And I had to just take responsibility and own that, that I really didn't understand myself. But I do now. I've read The Primal Wound twice. And, you know, you and I did The Coming Home. Uh, We're working on The Coming Home to Self, which is another big one by Nancy Verrier, but that's down the road because that one is really a lot to chew on. Yes. And it's not, you know, it's not easy reading. It's not. But it's, um, but it's beneficial because right. it helps you to understand who you are, why you are the way that you are so that yeah. you don't think, why am I different? Well, you can't help but be a certain way because of what you have experienced. Right. So it, val- it validates you gives you an understanding and I think that is very important to have that understanding. I agree. I call it doing the work. But the work yes. the work is rewarding. The work is rewarding and it's ongoing. Oh yes. Yeah, already get that in your mind. It's ongoing. It's <laughs> ongoing. You may take a break now and then, but it's ongoing. Yeah. You know, it's ongoing. I agree. Well thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you are a part of my life now as well, because you have supported me and helped me a great deal and and pushed me. (laughs) (laughs) See, I never even saw myself doing all that pushing, but... um, You you know, (laughs) well, see, you know, as a teacher, I used to call it gently nagging. You know, you're not really, you know, you just had a little gentle push, you know. Right. You know, so you, you sometimes you may not realize, I but you know, just a little jump. <laughs> I don't even realize, but I, I I appreciate you so much, and I oh, I'm so glad to have met you. Um, and likewise, yeah, it, you are a blessing to me, and I'm glad that we have the adoptee sisterhood yes. that meets once a month, and hopefully that will be an episode in the near future because I just think. All of us are doing the work. We know it's rewarding to do the work, and it means showing up and sharing and and engaging with the adoptee community, and and we're all better for it. We are. You know, when you listen to someone's story, then you realize, oh, that happened to me, or I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And so you understand that that's just part of the story, you know. Yeah. And listening, you know, listening to your podcast... Um, as well as, you know, like, who am I really? Damon Davis. Oh, you yes. Know. 
and adoptees on with Haley Radke. Yeah. You know, those because again, you're listening to adoptee stories and it's just it's validating. Yeah. And you find out the way your parents reacted, a lot of parents reacted the same way. Mm-hmm. You know. Now are you a member and you know, I could just talk to you for hours. <laughs> But I'm going to ask you this. This promise, my last question: Are you a member or part of any LDA groups? And if so, do you find that to be helpful? No, I am not. One of our meetings with the Adoption Network, there were a number of LDAs, and they mentioned that they might possibly have either establish a group or have a special session devoted to LDAs. But I feel that it is needed. It's, it's very, it's needed. We need to have a space for ourselves because some of the LDAs, some of them find out and they're barely out of their teenage years. And some of them are almost as old as me. And we all go through the same. And we, we need to work through that I feel it's needed. And I feel more literature is needed, more um, research. I think there's more research on transracial adoptees, but not much on LDAs. And that's very, it's very much needed. All right. I'm going to say thank you once again. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Cynthia and I could talk for hours because we relate in so many ways, especially as adoptees. I always learn so much from her as a late discovery adoptee. I truly hope LDAs know that you are not alone. And like Cynthia, there will be the opportunity to move through the anger of being deceived and betrayed by so many. There are so many times I get emotional about Cynthia's journey, like when she describes at the age of 46 learning from an adoption file about being in foster care for two years, two and a half years. She had no clue until someone told her. Like her, I choose to believe that I was in a healthy foster home for my first two years because of how I'm able to thrive today. Also, I agree with Cynthia that many people are dealing with their own traumas, and it's empowering for me to believe that everyone is doing the best that they can. One of my biggest feel-good takeaways during our conversation was Cynthia being the first biological family member that another adoptee would meet. Together, they have each other to navigate being apart from their tribe. I cheer Cynthia in every way for staying the course in her search and reunion. I thank her again and again for sharing her story, being a part of Adoptee Voices, and most importantly, one of the most uplifting people I know. She keeps me inspired to keep adding a valuable resource to the adoption community. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.